0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: A normal day at our home included the rumble of gunshots and rockets, We ignored the sounds and carried on with life. My sister played volleyball with relatives. I played hopscotch, and my father took his daily walks around the property after coming home from his job as an administrative director at the National Fertilizer Company, an American-funded Afghan government-owned project that offered chemical fertilizer to farmers. On some days, however, the shots and explosions barely missed members of my family. One spring day, when I was eight years old, Bibi Osea was extracting rose water from the pink roses that bloomed on our property when a stray bullet passed just above her four foot nine inches of height. It was hard to place the origin of the bullets because there were always so many of them. The bullet struck the brick wall of our house and burned a hole in it. After the incident, Bibi Osea hid in a room for a month, coming out only when necessary, and our family developed a morbid sense of humor.
0: Fariba Nawa has written for the San Francisco Chronicle, the Christian Science Monitor, Mother Jones, the Sunday Times Magazine in London, Newsday, and the Village Voice. Her book is Opium Nation, Child Brides, Drug Lords, and One Woman's Journey Through Afghanistan. Thank you for joining me, Fariba.
1: Thank you for having me, Rick.
0: At the heart of this book is your own dual identity. And I think that's an interesting struggle within yourself that is reflected in the nation you visit, in the nation you live in, and the conflict between the two of them.
1: Yes. It was, a, it was a hard decision to talk about this issue because initially the book was just supposed to be straight nonfiction about the drug trade in Afghanistan. I was told that the U.S. wouldn't take an interest unless there was an American in it and I was the American connection. And initially, it was hard because I come from a very private community and we keep our stories to ourselves because uh, sometimes they're very painful and other times there are things in our lives we don't want others to know. But as I began to write the memoir part, I really enjoyed it because it was an opportunity for me to talk about my family history. My grandfather was a writer. My father was an essayist. Most of what they wrote has, is missing. We don't know where it is. And this was an opportunity for me, even though I write in English and not in Farsi, um, to write about them and write about my experiences um, <clears throat> and our family history. So, And of course, talk about my own issues with being Afghan and American and going back as an exile. And really that's what the story, the personal story is about, is what it's like to go back home when home has vanished.
0: It's such an interesting vision of a character you create yourself and the world who has created that character. And I, I love the way that you take us through these You begin with a a really intense and kind of scarifying uh, border crossing from Iran into Afghanistan. And and I'd like you to to talk about, there's this book, Hopscotches in timelines with different parts and different histories. There are stories and stories within stories. Uh, This is a book where story is king,
1: Yes, it was. Doing it chronologically didn't make sense because life isn't chronological necessarily. Um, and often I would have flashbacks while I was there as an adult to my childhood. I sort of went through the many provinces I lived as a child. My father working for the National Fertilizer Company meant we traveled often. He he was transferred to many places and I lived in many provinces in Afghanistan once that spoke Pashto and, and Farsi and diff- from different ethnicities. Um, and when I went back as an adult, I got to explore those areas again. But crossing the border was very emotional for me because as a child, I was nine years old. Um, we were escaping as refugees with my sister, my mother, and my father. And it was on two donkeys. My sister and my mom were wearing burqas. I was a child. I was given one of the donkeys. I could ride on them, and the other held our belongings. And the desert we were crossing was from my hometown, Herat, to Iran, and it was the front line between the Mujahideen and the Soviet uh, and the Soviet puppet government, the communists we could have been killed by stray bullets or captured in an ambush at any point in time. And our story is so similar to so many others. And I, as a child, was told this. You, you We were sort of briefed on what to say and what to do if we were caught. Um, and it was done by our donkey um, owner. He had done this several times. And then this was one event, you know, we, we he he knew how to brief the kids and the adults. And i always remember his face. He had a very sweet face with a turban and and clothes. And he made this trip every day, God knows how many times. It was a six-hour ride through the desert until we got to Iran. And I refused to drink the the desert water because it was too salty. So by the time we crossed the border, um, we were welcomed by a Mujahideen family who we knew. And there we drank water, (laughs) lots and lots of water.
0: One of the things I think that Uh, strikes me uh, about this book is the way um, the artificiality of the country you come from Afghanistan is has helped to turn it into kind of a, a mishmash it's not like a real place in a sense is it
1: the borders aren't real no, the borders are colonially imposed. Uh, the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan is called the Duran Line. It was an Afghan leader, and and the British basically decided that border. The same with Iran. The only border that's a geographical border is the northern border where there's the Amu or the Oxus River. So, as far as the borders are concerned, it's really, <laughs> um, it it is. And but one thing that I constantly talk about is that Afghanistan. Is not a graveyard of empires. It's a cradle of empires, and that's important for people in the U.S. to know because there's a whole myth about how we cannot conquer this nation. Um, there's a lot of Orientalist thinking behind this country, how we are warriors, many stereotypes, and and some may be true, but uh, but really these these are people who who've, uh, who who are a mishmash of ethnicities. And the reason I said they're a cradle of empires is Afghans have co-opted many different conquerors from Genghis Khan, the Mongolians, to Alexander the Great and so on. And they've intermarried, and you ha- that's why you have so many different identities. When people see me, they don't know I'm Afghan because I look like I could be from Ohio. I have blonde hair and fair skin pale skin. And I always have to justify that and legitimize myself and say, no, I'm Afghan too. Uh, yes, this this look is rare, but it exists. And uh, you also see people who look East Asian and mongoloid features. The only thing you wouldn't see in Afghanistan is of African descent.
0: Now, one of the things that uh, this book you, you speak of, this book, it's an absolution, a, a, a work of absolution for you. And and I'd like you to talk about that, because that's a, a big thing to take on.
1: Can you be more specific? What do you mean by absolution? Well, you said it was an
0: act of to document the stories of those left behind so their experiences would not be forgotten.
1: Right, right. As we speak, Afghanistan is being forgotten in the news and among Amer- the American consciousness. And after 10 years, I was hoping that these two countries would be intertwined, not just in war, but in, in culture in understanding, in, um, and understanding. And that's not happening. This is not Vietnam. Uh, I feel like Vietnam is remembered still because there was a critical media. There was, it was a different era. Um, so part of what I talk about, in, when, what you mean by absolution, is coming to terms with many things myself. And also representing this as an american and as an afghan to an to a non afghan audience and that's why it has so many aspects to it, like you say, um, and so many different stories of people
0: well, one of the things it, it's really a great reading experience for us because it in its structure, it helps recreate in our minds, i think. Your life experience, the experience of the Afghan people, what the Afghan nation is, what the complicated relationships between all the different peoples and ethnicities in there are, and I, I think that uh, as a writer, this must have been a challenging task for you to put together. I mean, it's an amazing document.
1: Yeah, I, it was. I, I wrote several drafts, um, and I actually wrote it as two separate books: memoir one, a nonfiction. what connected the story were how I became personally involved in the tales of the people I was writing about. And that's how I was able to bring it together. Um, And I think some people who still read it, the comments I've gotten from readers are some say, we wish it wasn't so personal. You could have just kept it to a nonfiction story about Afghanistan and kept yourself out. Others say we wanted more of the personal. Um, And that reader reaction is based on gender, it seems. The women want more personal, the men want less personal. Um, You can't satisfy everybody, but while I was writing, I was trying to connect the two experiences, mine as well as the people of Afghanistan.
0: I think you did a fabulous job, and I think I really like the balance and going back and forth. It, It keeps our interest in the characters, but also gets us deep into the background, and the characters reflect the deep history you're writing about. Now, I, once you came to America, you grew up and and I love some of the stories you tell about growing up wearing deciding to wear the uniform so you could impose order on your life.
1: Yeah, I find immigrant experiences and refugee experiences quite similar uh, no matter where you come from. But my own were I was very attached to my school and my studies and my teachers. I had great passion for them and leaving them was the hardest part and then to come here and i went to we lived in a very poor neighborhood in the bay area and i didn't understand how students treated their teachers how rude they were i was mortified by it and then the entire focus on fashion and brand names and I just thought it was ridiculous, and I still do. So I insisted on wearing a uniform no matter who uh, wore what. And so I, my mom had made dresses for me, and they weren't fashionable according to U.S. standards. I wore one every single day until another student noticed and said, are you poor? Don't you have anything else to wear? And I was so hurt that after that I would wear a different dress every day.
0: Talk about the decision you made to go back to Afghanistan um, You've been brought up here in the Bay Area, you've gone to college, you, you've gone, become pretty American. And, and so that's not an easy decision to make to go back, especially uh, given where you were on 9 11.
1: I think I always wanted to go back. In fact, it took me a long time to accept that we weren't going back. This was a question I asked my parents from the age of 10 when we first arrived here until I actually went uh, to realize that. Going back was not an option for my parents. When are we going home? I don't like it here. This was something that, that and I, I did become very Americanized. I rebelled against the, the sexism in the community, but I never considered that all that American. I considered it my human right. Um, as far as culturally, the music I listened to, the food I ate, um, I was Afghan. My moral values, for the most part, And it's very hard to delineate identity like that because, as you and I know, identity is a very complex thing, um, and we all have some kind of duality. Um, It's multifaceted. Um, But in in the Afghan circle of friends that we had, we were always told, you're either Afghan or American. You can't be both. But I would say I am both, even though I'm closer to my culture and I want to go home Uh, There's much a part of me that's also American, and I think being Afghan-American is very possible. It's not a clash of civilizations at all. Um, However, my homeland was Afghanistan. My adopted country was America, and I saw that clearly, and it's been like that from day one until now. Um, Going back was actually an adventure for me. It was just about the logistics of how I would go back, who I would go see. The first time I went back was in 2000 under the Taliban and it, it was illegal for an american woman reporter to come in and report so i had to do it undercover literally in a burqa
0: tell us a little bit about the logistics of getting yourself into a burqa and also you've been you've been in america all most of your you know conscious deciding growing up life to to take on that kind of identity uh, in what was once your homeland, you're experiencing a dual kind of clash because you're clashing with who you once were. Back then, you might not have had to. Your parents lived a kind of normal middle-class life. And you came back to some place, to the homeland um, from your non-homeland. <laughs> it's a real back-and-forth hopscotch thing for you. I
1: think one thing if your children travel a lot and you're used to that sort of vagabond life, which I was, as I said, as a child, it was easy. For me, it's very, and this is also being bicultural, coming from another land and having to get used to, especially in the Bay Area, not just being mainstream America, but you're learning about what Hispanic is, what African American is, um, the mishmash of cultures here. And so I learned to fit in. My best friend in high school was African American. I learned about Langston Hughes and the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and Cajun food. So it was easy for me to sort of become a chameleon, shall I say. I knew what I believed in, but I didn't have to impose that on the people around me. In fact, in order to understand, and I think that's what a good journalist does really, is to take on and, and to sort of just disappear and observe others and what they're doing. I did not go there as an activist. I went there as a journalist, which I think are two different things. If I return again, it it would be in the activist capacity, I think.
0: Now, uh, as growing up here, you saw some of the uh, end results of what was happening economically in Afghanistan with regards to the opium uh, trade, how it had come to dominate the economy there and the culture there. You saw uh, the OD'd addicts on uh, San Francisco streets.
1: My experience with heroin was interesting from middle school watching a kid in the library with his arm, with needle marks in his arm, to the tenderloin watching uh, young, young people over, you know, completely drugged out. Um, I was always curious about sort of the abyss of, of addiction. And to find out that 90% of the opiates come from uh, Afghanistan made it all the more uh, personal. So, but, that, but intellectually, I was interested in the story because very few people were covering this. And also I came, uh, when I was traveling cross country from Kabul to Herat um, and passing through province to province, these are all border provinces, border to Pakistan and Iran. Uh, people were not talking about the Taliban or, they were talking about opium as it is a business. They were talking about how traffickers were making their life miserable. And this was a story at that time in, in 2000, 2001, 2002 that wasn't being reported widely. Um, and so I took an interest for that reason as well. My interest became what the human toll was beyond the business story.
0: Well, I think this is one of the things you do really well is to take us into this variety of stories and the variety of ways that opium uh, dominates life, both for in some ways for good and... and most ways for bad. Uh, so talk about finding these different stories and meeting these different people and how that felt to you, um, both as a, uh, somebody coming home to a place that you, and it's to a, a country in which essentially you had never lived.
1: It, it was a long process. It took five years to win the trust of people. To get inside their homes, to talk to these people, and everywhere I went, I traveled with a man who was uh, of that area, who spoke the language of the district. Districts are like counties here, um, and often they were villages. And the reason I traveled with a man was purely for safety. Afghanistan is manistan; it is controlled by men, and therefore, as a journalist, you want to be safe, but you also want to get access. So, as a fee- this is the the, the positive side of being a woman, a male reporter going in, whether Afghan or non, is not going to have access to women he's not related to. Uh, A foreign male, even worse. Um, I had access to everybody, from drug dealers to opium brides to um, female farmers, and, and that made it easy. But it was also, I think, sitting down and talking to them and talking about who I was. That's what I find when I'm able to talk to people and they're sharing their stories with me, they wanna know who you are. We're taught in journalism school here to keep ourselves out of the equation, to focus on the people we're writing about. But that doesn't always bring out the truth in people because why should they trust you if they don't know who you are and what your motives are? And often they, they wanna know. I, I don't believe in objectivity, I believe in fairness. And to be fair, I think you have to tell them, here's my story, what's yours? And that's what I did with a lot of these women and men who talked to me, even the drug dealers. And I found myself sometimes disgusted, for example, by some of the, by the 46-year-old husband who had come to take away the 12-year-old bride. Her father had sold her to marriage to this man who was 34 years older. I was disgusted by him. But at the same time, the more I talked to him, I saw his side of the story, that he was poor, he was uneducated. Um, and you learn to see everybody's humanity in one way or another. And I think that's what, what, why I was successful in getting these different stories.
0: I think that's what makes the stories such compelling reading because you simply immerse us in the situation. And part of the situation you're immersing us in is we're discovering your, as you discover, your own sense of duality even more. And I think that's a really interesting way to get into the, these different houses. And I, the one situation that obviously affected you the most was, was Daria. So talk about uh, this place where she lived, Gorion, and, and, right. and it was such a, the way you create these villages um, and describe them, did you have to photograph and have maps, do you have photographs and maps of these things no. so that you can write about them?
1: One thing I regret about not having in the book, and I will have it in the reprint, if there is a reprint, hopefully, is a map. Because I, I talk, I, it's a travel log, really. I'm going mm-hmm. from place to place uh, where the drug trade is. It's, it's on the chain. Um, what I, I didn't take maps. I, I hate maps. I ask people where things are. And I had these guides, or what we call fixers in, in the business, who led me to these people. But I did my own talking where I spoke the language, which was Farsi. And I, and again, that made a big difference in the stories I got and the version of the stories I got. Um, and then in the southern part of the country where they speak Pashto, I had to hire translators because I don't speak that language. But I, the village that you mentioned, Ghorian, is on the border of Iran. It is a district full of these scattered villages, um, and some of them are nomadic. They're tents. You see black tents with nomads living in them, um, mainly they're sheep herders. But now what they used to do, which was grazing and how they, subsistence farming, and most of that is, most of their life is based on the opium trade. Uh, Whether it is smuggling it um, across the border or uh, trading it for other products or um, becoming addicted to it, and many of the women have become addicted and They've also turned to prostitution as a way to support their habit and their family. Um, in, I talk about Rurion and I say it's drowning in opium because you actually see it um, in their backyard. People were, at the time I was there, people were growing it in their backyard instead of growing flowers. And, and poppy are ha- flowers, but once the flower falls, it creates this deadly medicine. Many of them use it for medicinal purposes as well. But now it's being turned into heroin more and more and smoked and snorted.
0: One of the things that I found really interesting was the importance of Iran in all of this. It's a huge, we really don't know much about Iran and I learned quite a bit about it from reading your book and so I'd like you to talk about what happens to the Afghanis who go in and are caught and where where all this heroin is going? A lot of it's going to Iran.
1: Right. Um, the biggest consumers of Afghanistan's uh, heroin now it's it's two thirds. Like I said, of opium is refined into heroin in Afghan in lab laboratories. Heroin laboratories. Um, it goes to the neighboring countries, and there are six neighbors that being China, Pakistan, Iran, uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. And then it's it's taken to Europe and other parts of Asia. The United States gets most of its drugs from Mexico. Uh, So does Canada. We get 10 to 15% of Afghan heroin. Uh, We, I mean the US in this case. But as far as Iran is concerned, it is the most addicted country in the world. Um, And the reason for that is this opium coming in. There's a demand for it, and Afghanistan supplies it. And there are eight forms of heroin, and there are so many different types of drugs on Iranian streets. You see, just like the tenderloin, in all parts of Tehran, I saw people using drugs. Um, And other cities like Mashhad, and especially the border towns. The border towns are very similar to Afghan border towns, where they're surviving on the opium trade economically. But it is the Iranian government is dealing with it not very successfully. They're actually decriminalizing um, addiction in some ways. Um, but they're, what they do to Afghan smugglers is, I'm not sure about the number. It's very small grams of heroin. If they capture them, they hang them. And often they're hanged without a trial. Uh, the latest statistic I have is there are 3,000 Afghans on death row right now in Iran. And waiting. F- and, and who's connected to these men? There are women in the villages like Rurion, their mothers, their wives, their children, who are left without a livelihood once their man is taken and killed. And often and they don't know what happens to him.
0: And they're left with his debt They're as well. left with
1: his debt, exactly. So because the opium is given, the smugglers or the traffickers give these couriers the drugs and say, cross the border, bring us the money, and then you'll get your money. He leaves and le- takes the drugs and then... There go the drugs and the man, and there's nothing in return. So they come back to the widows and ask for money. And the widows, uh, if they have land, cash, gold, um, carpets, and then the last resort is a child. They will sell their daughters, and now more and more they're selling their sons into slavery, essentially. as it, it Previously, when I was there in, two, in 2003, 4, 5, until 2007, I was reporting on this story a lot of these girls became second or third wives, which is still an honorable title. But now more and more, I'm hearing that they're being trafficked across the border and turned into prostitutes in Pakistan, in Central Asia, and the Gulf.
0: You you did speak in this book of, about, you know, uh, Afghan's legacy of slavery and, and how, how that was somewhat, that's part of the culture there. And I thought it's interesting and shocking and horrific. This is a book full of... Uh, the humanity at some of its lowest points.
1: It is humanity at its lowest points. I wouldn't say it's part of the culture so much as these archaic traditions, because I happen to believe that culture is very fluid and it, it will change, right? And throughout time, people are constantly questioning and 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 resisting to this culture. For example, these girls are burning themselves to death. That's a way of protest.
0: This is something we don't hear about. I mean, we hear about every time a, a Tibetan monk self-immolates, we hear about it. But we don't hear about uh, Afghan child brides who do so. And I think that's... They,
1: often, you don't know that they're child brides. They're mm-hmm. self-immolating because of forced marriage is what you hear in the media. Um, it's not something that's openly discussed because often fathers and mothers are ashamed of doing it. They're ashamed of selling their daughters. It, what is common is what they call bad. It's, it's in exchange for something. <laughs> And it's in some communities that happens, where you, ex- you barter a young girl into property. And yes, this has been going on for centuries. However, what is happening now is, again, that girl was turned into a wife, a slave. A slave in the terms of she becomes a servant, and then when her husband dies, because the husband is so much older, she will inherit property. So being a wife is all not that, all, that bad. Like I said, what's changed is the level of it, how many girls are now uh, being bartered and in what capacity. The term wife is now loosely used, and now we're talking about giving these girls and trafficking, it's human trafficking is what's happening now.
0: Talk about the American invasion and the plans for crop eradication and we heard so much about that you know when that when we went in there and i think uh some of us had hopes that yes it would be a successful exercise in nation building and it hasn't worked out that way
1: no because we made a lot of mistakes we again as the americans um the american government came in the american american government was part of creating this immense drug trade the cia and the reagan administration helped the opium trade become this big because they encouraged the mujahideen to to force farmers to grow opium in some areas and then turn that opium into heroin and sell it to fund their war against the Soviet Union. Another thing they did was they actually encouraged a strategy to hook Soviet soldiers on heroin. And that would... They, they would lose the war because they they weren't able to perform in battle. And it was very successful because today Russia claims that they lose 30,000 lives a year to Afghan heroin overdoses. They say that's Afghanistan's revenge on us. Now I hear the same thing is happening with the Taliban, with American troops, but I don't really have that much proof. That's why I didn't write about it in the book extensively. But the US has been intricately involved in this process. but what is happening now and the reason they started to pay attention to it and this is with the obama administration is because the taliban have been using heroin money uh, to fund their war against the u.s it's a cycle wherever there are drugs usually there is a war going on whether it was vietnam or uh, or colombia and now afghanistan and heroin is a lucrative drug it pays for a lot of things there are various numbers, as from seventy to half a billion dollars, that the Taliban are making from the heroin trade. Uh, before that, the Bush administration decided to look the other way. Um, they said that a lot of these drug dealers in the who are in the government now are helping helping us capture Taliban members, so we're not going to touch uh, how they make money. That's their problem.
0: Well, one of the things you talk about in the book is the the problems of corruption and. How many police are corrupt, and how you you talk about uh, one fellow who's supposed to go undercover in the police, and he's like a lieutenant? It's it's really uh, it's extremely frightening how how this is. This makes the Sopranos look like uh, grade school.
1: It is. It's still not as violent as Mexico, believe it or not. That's what's interesting about it because there's still some kind of community link. No one. Uh, Kingpin owns more than 300 kilometers of land, controls, I should say, whereas in Mexico you have these big cartels uh, controlling uh, and being extremely violent. Um, But in Afghanistan, yes, it it is more dangerous to be a clean police officer who fights the drug trade than to look the other way or to take bribes for helping people in the drug trade. So what would most police officers or law enforcement choose to do? They usually have to go with the flow, which is to allow the drugs to pass across the border, to allow those uh, big trucks with chemical, uh, ke- precursor chemicals. Those are what's, what's used to turn opium into heroin. Um, it looks like water. It's called acetic anhydride. They allow them to pass through. That's the way it goes. And yes, most of the government, most of the places I went to, somebody was involved. And often with people at top, in the, on the top
0: there's something that many of your guides told you at one point or another, don't be stupid. <laughs> and <laughs>
1: I... I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that was, people ask me often, oh, you were so brave, you were, how did you do this? You know, as a journalist, you have to have a sense of adventure and curiosity. And at this point in my life, I was single, I had a lot of energy, I had a lot of access, and my goal was to observe and write what I saw. So why wouldn't I? Um, I'm a mother of two young girls now. I would not take the same risks. And in fact, it has become a lot more dangerous now than when I was there reporting. Um, I got lucky in a lot of places. Uh, But you did read that, you know, in in, in the search for the opium bride who I called Daria, I almost got kidnapped by the Taliban. So I took my risks and I got lucky. And often it was these guides who saved my life um taking a trip to the opium bazaar
0: that was a great such a great scene it's like the hut of baba yaga they're all there, they're all on little stilts and it's it's really cute. <laughs> yeah creepy. it was
1: i'm glad i did it would i do it again in that situation i probably should have listened to the driver and not done it because he was his life was in danger and often when i you know when i leave and i wrote this in the book it's i can leave i have an american passport these guys have to stay and they have to bear the brunt of it if there is any kind of backlash. You brought an American woman into our home. Often I had to go undercover and say that I'm not coming from the West. I'm just an Afghan woman who's writing about this issue. Um, In the case of going to search for Daria, I said I was her relative, because it was an extremely dangerous trip. And I knew that. And I was warned several times by many, many people that I should not go through with it. But it's because I had this this guilt, because this young girl, this 12-year-old girl, asks me for help, and I got personally involved, there was no way that I could not go. I had to go. I, my conscience would not be clear.
0: Talk about meeting Daria and, the, and the, those scenes which are so poignant and, and also frightening, too.
1: Up until the point I met Daria, the story was a magazine story. It was an interesting story to report on. Um, I was intellectually involved. Then this 12-year-old girl who's been bartered into marriage and doesn't want to go. And she's what made her special to me was she reminded me of me. She was rebellious. She wanted to go to school. She wanted to have a life of her own. She had a voice. She was not this sort of the the voiceless Afghan woman victim you hear about often in the media. Um, So, And the reason I know this is because she was fighting her mom. As I would go to their house and interview her about her plight, she she was constantly resisting with her mother. Her father had sold her and her sister to two smugglers, opium smugglers. One, the sister's husband never showed up. We can assume he died, We'd, or just decided he didn't want his payment. The daughter; These daughters are payment, essentially. And Daria's husband was from another province, Helmand province, which many of your listeners probably have heard of. It's the front line and was. And they didn't speak each other's language. There was this huge age difference. The husband had a wife, and eight other kids. Um, and she was his payment. He came to collect. But he was nice enough to try to convince her. And I happened to be there while he, he came, and I got to interview him. But while I was interview him, interviewing him, um, she came with her baby sister in her arms. She sat next to me, shivering. She pulled on my coat, and she said, you have to help me. I don't want to go with him. And she looked me in the eye. And at that point, everything changed. This became a book and a personal uh, personal journey.
0: One of the things I think that uh, struck me as I was reading this book again and again, I'm reading this book, most of Afghan is illiterate.
1: Most of Afghanistan, yes, especially among the women population, they're illiterate. They cannot read or write. Most, m- much of what is passed on is through oral tradition.
0: Uh, talk about you know, how that changes their culture you you're highly literate obviously and so i'd like you to talk about the difference that the reading experience makes made for you and makes for them in their ability to shape their lives and shape their culture
1: i think that's changing now because you have more girls going to school you have more people going to school than ever before Um, the level of education is not the best but they're getting access to basic reading skills and it's empowering to be able to go outside and read a sign. One of the uh, I had a housekeeper in Kabul and she was from a village in the north. Um, she had her own very interesting story. She was a runaway with her husband and she was hiding basically in Kabul. She would come to my house and clean and cook and she was 21 years old. She already had two kids and she gave birth in the mountains of Afghanistan without any attendance or any kind of health care. She was still alive, which was a miracle. Um, I decided that At the time I met her, I became pregnant with my first daughter, and I was home and not able to do much. I decided I was going to teach her how to read and write in Farsi, and she was ecstatic. Every day she would come to my house, and that's the first thing we did, um, with a pen and paper in a plastic bag, and she would tell her relatives in her village. What's changed now is telecommunications. Even the villages have access to cell phones. It's a big business now she would call them and tell them i'm learning how to read and write which meant that her status would go up as as a member of that village so i think it's changing but is it sustainable i i don't know as far as my own experiences reading i read a lot while i was here as uh, that was how i fit in i learned to i learned about america through television and books i used to read everything from harlequin romance novels to catcher in the rye to what I had to read in school. And I learned a lot. Whatever I know of this language, the nuances are from reading.
0: You describe in in this book, uh, at one point you're there when they're attempting to take down somebody who's been accused of uh, smuggling drugs, and the whole thing seems like kind of a setup. So talk about that. It was experience. such a
1: convoluted... The, the province that I talk about is in Tahar, which is on the border of Tajikistan. And here they smuggle these... Uh, uh, they smuggle the drugs. It's all, almost all heroin. There's no opium in this place. And it's a free-for-all. In the South, politics and Taliban and tribes, it's it's a different story there. Whereas in the North, it's a free-for-all. Anyone who has guns and land and power will deal drugs, from my experience there. And in Tahar, everyone is betraying everyone else i mean i couldn't even get the details straight i happened to witness one of these drug busts the local police busted the the local secret police uh, the guy who worked for let's say the afghan kgb or the afghan cia they're called amniyat and the local police chief there busted one of these guys with six kilos of heroin if I remember the details right and it was a revenge bust because he had been busted before by this guy and I witnessed them while they took this guy and it was very dark we were tra- I was traveling there that night I was going from the capital of Tahar to this village way up in the mountains and uh, I just happened to right place, right time, or wrong place, wrong time. And I thought they saw me, which would have been deadly. Um, But they didn't. Uh, But it created a very um, suspenseful scene in the book while this was happening. And then I realized, as I started to investigate the drug trade there, there were so many crazy stories. It was like The Sopranos, it was like some movie, and I was there, and and I was talking to people. And uh, then I realized that that drug bus I had witnessed was the talk of, was the news in that town at that point, and it was linked to so many other things that have happened, Um, from a laboratory bus to somebody's young son being killed, and they were all intertwined somehow. And the most important part of that story was the man who sits in parliament now, Piram He was the Uzbek leader there. Uh He was involved with all of this. And, of course, he denied it, but I had an opportunity... To interview him and it was one of my best interviews with government officials because he really kind of opened up and said I may not change but I want the next generation to be different he said look at me look at me I am the story I'm the dark story of Afghanistan an an illiterate man but he is a populist and they they love him in this area and uh, he was many people are afraid of him I mean you don't become this guy's enemy because if you do he kills people um, but many of the NGO and aid workers who were in this area liked him because they thought he brought order and right now in Afghanistan order and security are the num- are the two most important things in a, in a family's life
0: This book has gives us all sorts of portraits of different uh, women from the woman from uh, Daria's mother who's it, there's a where she says we own nothing they we own nothing so yeah. extreme poverty yeah. to Parmin, who who's a kind of an empowered woman who who's her own farmer and growing the poppies.
1: That, that was the other side of the story. That was so exciting to find out. I mean, in Herat province, in the Koryan district, I was meeting all these victims, victims, these awful, awful stories and just getting depressed reporting on them. And then I go to Badakhshan, which is on the other side of the country. It's an amazingly beautiful place. I call it an uncharted Switzerland. Um, I've, I've seen the most beautiful waterfalls and hills and Mountains in this province, and the people are actually just a mixture of ethnicities, so they're beautiful. But uh, there are women landowners there who were growing poppy, and for the first time, they were making money. Um, And when the woman I talk about, her name that that you mentioned, Parween, she was very smart. She was weaning her family off the poppy trade. She had made a lot of money from one year's harvest, so she told her. Um, son. Her son and daughter were both married with kids but living with her because they didn't have an income. She bought her son a car and said turn it into a taxi with your kids and go find your own place to live. She got her daughter a carpet frame and she said weave carpets, sell them, and then you'll have an income so you can leave and live with your your in-laws if you need to because that's the tradition or go find your own place. And for the first time her her own family was having three meals a day. And so, but she wanted to wean off of poppy, which meant that she wanted alternatives. But nobody at that point was giving her alternatives. She didn't have access to easy water. Uh, poppy is easy to grow because you don't need that much water. It's labor intensive. You need a lot of people to get the, the juice out of the poppy pods because each poppy pod is scored separately.
0: You know, it's interesting, too. I really knew never knew much about the actual farming process and, and these pods and... and did you wander out and amid these things and get your own fingers sticky with the icky black ichor?
1: I did. I did. In Badakhshan province, at that point, this is 2004 in the summer, it was so free. People were poppy-free. Now that has changed. Badakhshan claims to be a poppy-free province. Um, but back then, people were growing it. It was on the streets. Um, what happens is the poppy, when it the flowers bloom, they're gorgeous flowers. Purple, white, red, and then the petals fall, and that's the time when you can score the juice out. And the juice has to be left on the outside for for 24 hours or so. And the next morning they come out, it turns gummy, and they score it out with a, a piece of equipment specific for this uh, for this job. And you, a lot of sharecroppers are hired to do this. Um, so I did, I, it was right next to the opium bazaar in a district in Badakhshan, and I went, and the farmers were actually really welcoming. Women were among the farmers, but they didn't want to talk about it. They were ashamed to be doing it. They did not want to be doing it. They were doing it because there was a lack of labor. So I, I, I did, I asked them about it. I hung out with them for some time. I interviewed the poppy farmers, and then I went on to the opium bazaar. Uh,
0: you give us portraits of, you know, heroes uh, in, who, in the anti-drug war there, and uh, a couple of men who come to an unfortunate end, and, and some women who don't. So talk about uh, discovering these stories and writing them up and meeting the people. And I think, as ever, putting yourself in imminent danger.
1: Part of this book was, I have to admit that I do have a very strong sense of adventure. I enjoy the adrenaline rush. I enjoy, I I was a war correspondent. I covered Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. So this was something I, putting myself in danger was part of what I enjoyed doing. Um, But meeting these people in Takhar province where I I witnessed that drug bust um, and it seemed like almost everyone I was meeting was corrupt. Of course, that wasn't the case inside homes and with women. It was different, but the government officials. So I came back to Kabul and I said, there, gotta, there has to be people who were fighting this. And, and then I started to go hang out with the um, a counter-narcotics police who were being, this is an elite force called the National Interdiction Unit. And they were being trained by Blackwater, infamous Blackwater, but the DEA and the British were also involved. And they had women. Again, women are on both sides of this. Women are fighting this as well as involved in it. And in this case, they had women officers who were, who were learning how to shoot guns, how to fly helicopters, how to go blow up heroin labs. They were involved in all parts of it. Um, and then two of the girls were called ninja ladies. They had nicknamed them the DEA agents because they had um, used their skills to fight harassment on a bus. A man who had attacked them, they attacked back with a knife. And uh, they their their identities, had their job was never revealed to anyone because they were undercover officers, most of them. Uh, people, their neighbors knew they were working with law enforcement. They didn't know in what capacity. And then I met these, I didn't meet them, unfortunately, because they were gone by the time I heard their stories. But these two um, very intelligent, the best of the best, let's call them something like the Navy SEALs, who were... Um, trained, and they were sent to Helmand to help fight drug dealers, and they were shot and killed in a really awful way. And I met their families, and they told me how clean and how good these men were. And that was a relief to me, um, to see that not all Afghans were part of this. Even These guys fought hard, and they, at, at all, they stood up to this business at every point they were offered bribes they didn't take it their lives was were were in danger several times they didn't flinch and to me that's heroism but in the end they didn't make it
0: the story in this book and the overall story as we read this book is so wonderful to experience because it's really it's full of rich raw life good and bad and I think it's shot through with a real ray of hope in that you were able to tell this story. And I think the fact that you're able to even get it down on paper in a way we can read it and then understand it. So I'd like you to talk about you putting this all together and getting these different strains because it's not all good. It's not all bad. It, it's the way it is.
1: I'm glad you see it that way because often... People read it and just see the sort of the sadness of it, the uh, the parts that make them cry. It's an, it's an emotionally strong book. Mm-hmm. And I meant it to be that way because this is not a light topic. At the same time, I think it's an adventure story. Um, and I'm glad to be alive and to tell the stories. The process took so long because I was constantly looking for one character to tell the story. And Daria is a mystery in the book because she was a mystery to me. I didn't know she would be enough to hold the book together. And I learned as I was writing the other stories of all these other people that I don't need one central character, that that central character was me actually, holding everyone else, linking all these other characters together. And Darya did become the compelling character in this n- Exactly for that reason, because she was absent, she is not in every chapter, but she is the inspiration for every chapter. It's her absence that makes her the central character to me rather than this one person who's constantly narrating it um, so but it, but in sort of the literary struggle there was cr- finding that person, so I was I kept going back to the field to find that one person, and in the end, I found many people who were worthy of. Uh, Of writing a book about really Um, and I tried to give stories that gave a different perspective in each province because most of the stories especially in Ghorian were the same I am a victim of this horrible drug trade and um, I tried to mix that in so I write about it an addict I don't know if you noticed but the the story of the addict I, I made it very light Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because addiction itself is such a depressing topic. I wanted to meet someone who wasn't so depressing because there are many functional addicts in society, in Afghanistan as well as in the U.S. And this woman was fairly functional. She was hilarious. She took a dime size of opium, and not heroin, but opium, because she had pain and she became addicted to it as a result. And I met her and her daughter-in-law, who were both addicts. And just sat there and listened to them, talk about their addiction, and talk about it and they were just a blast. It was sad in the end because these women are hooked, um, but to know them as people and not just as addicts was what made them compelling characters
0: well, I think that's the 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 power of this book is to give us this to give us the to reveal to us the complexity of something that um every news report, everything we hear wants to simplify. And sometimes simplification is good. Sometimes it really misses the point.
1: Yeah, I I think that was some of the comments I've got, that you need a map, a timeline. I had to Google everything. And my comment to that reader is, You don't need to understand every single term or know where every single place in the book is. Really, just read the stories. It's through these stories that you're going to understand the country. And I think there's a universality to these people um, that really their mothers, their daughters, their professionals, their teachers, um, and they have basic wants and needs that most Americans do. They want their kids to go to school. They want to have food on the table. They want peace which we take for granted in this country. And that's really what I wanted to relay to, to the American population.
0: They want 24-hour electricity and clean
1: water. Yes, those are our basic needs. <laughs> I learned to live without those. That was another adventure in itself, the can... pure logistics of living in Afghanistan.
0: What are you working on now?
1: I'm working on a second book. It is a culinary memoir about Afghan-Americans And the working title is Nostalgia Rice and Homeland Kebabs, Little Afghanistan in America. It'll be very different than Opium Nation. And that's because I am in a different place in life right now. I'm a mother of two, as I mentioned. I have to live here for the time being because my husband is going to school. Once he finishes school, we plan to go abroad again, but to some place where it's not a war zone. I grew up in a war as a child. I watched a classmate die in front of me. I watched my school get bombed. I don't want to raise my kids.
0: I've been speaking with Fariba Nawa. Her book is Opium Nation. Thank you for joining me, Fariba.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. (music)